three, two, one. I am so happy to be introducing you all to Dr. Maitha Al-Hassan, who is an academic, a historian, a writer, an artist, a healer, an activist, so many different things. And most recently, I'm so excited, she is our researcher who's leading the research on SSSS, see something, say something. And she has done so much investigative work in this space, analyzing and critiquing the media industry, the film industry. She has several reports that she's been a part of that we're linking in the show notes for this conversation. And we wanted to have this prerequisite conversation to pinpoint this moment in time, the 20th year anniversary of 9-11, and to let you all know where our heads and our hearts are at with this project, why we are doing this work, the questions that we want you to sit with, the things that we want to face, and some of our own personal stories along this journey. You know that in our project processes, we are very transparent. We let you all know as we are producing the things that we are finding and the stories that we are uncovering, and we are in constant communication with you all. I know we're going to be overwhelmed with the response and submissions, and I'm incredibly excited and we feel so ready to do this and to be a part of this. And we're doing this for you. We are doing this for your younger selves and your current selves and our future selves. So welcome to Podcast Noor. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Maithal Hassan. I hope you choose to keep an open mind and an open heart within this conversation and after this conversation and as we present to you our new investigation, see something, say something. Spiritual advisor, historian, journalist, writer, producer. She's also someone who is going to be joining us for this new investigative project that we have been sharing with you all, SSSS, See Something, Say Something. And it seems like since we've started the, since we've even started talking about the project, it has already begun to constantly evolve because we have so many things that have been presented recently. And of course, this week is the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And I think time to set an intention on how we begin to talk about that event and the events surrounding that moment in time and its impact on our culture and our identity. So welcome, Maitha, and I would love to hear from you just where your heart is at this week. Thank you for having me, Noor, and I am really thrilled to be part of a project that is going through an investigative interactive process to reconstruct a story of the last 20 years so that we can construct our own story and narrative for the next 20 plus 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 years. Mm-hmm. Of course, for folks, maybe we should explain the origin of that emblem, SSSS, for mm. what it is, what it means for our community. Yeah, I think that that would be amazing and also referencing the double entendre for that. So SSSS 
S ha- happens to be the uh, four S's that some people get on their boarding passes when they're being pulled aside for secondary screening and security. And it also happens to stand for the phrase, see something, say something that was coined the day after September 11th. So take us back to the origin of the phrase. Yeah. So what I understand, and it's fascinating, I've been watching some content as I've been writing some work, reflecting, it almost immediately what the Bush administration narratively constructed has yet to be undone, as you mentioned. And in concordance with that, our infrastructures of surveillance, infrastructures of war making, infrastructures of expanding the executive branch to a point where we can't even recognize the necessity of reintroducing limits to go back to checks and balances. So when we talk about see something, say something, that was part of a philosophical approach that the Bush administration took around inviting people, as they said, to be with us or against us. That was Mm. quite literally the language directed towards the global international community and directed mostly to Muslim Americans in the U.S. So if you're with us, you're a good Muslim. If you're against us being not with us, you're a bad Muslim. You have an uneasiness, a critique of being used as a scapegoat for the erosion of civil liberties, you're a bad Muslim. If you have not signed up to surveil our communities as part of the work that was happening, um, and it wasn't just the Bush administration, it was extended into the Obama administration with Mm -hmm. the investment in CVE, which is... Countering violent extremism. Precisely. And that was a tagging because the the countering violent extremism measure, which funneled millions of dollars into giving and outsourcing Muslim organizations and leaders into surveilling whether or not there was suspicious activity in our communities that they would report to the state. And they would work in concert with the state. They would get this money. They would get these grants to initiate that kind of community surveillance. What ended up happening, of course, was that even the FBI records at the time showed that most of the domestic, quote unquote, terrorism threats in the U.S. came from Christian fundamentalists, far right white extremists, very familiar folks who um, initiate mass shootings at schools, movie theaters. However, this program was only focused on Muslim communities. And so we're trying to really tackle, this is a long explanation for tackling and unpacking what else has happened. What has happened culturally Mm -hmm. to our communities to have undergone such a thorough infrastructural assault? And then also, mm-hmm. what stories have we not shared? We have people in our community who've done amazing projects in trying to capture what happened to their own communities after 9-11. You know, there was a, a targeting of uh, charities, Muslim charities and donating to Muslim charities. Some of the biggest 
Muslim organizations, if you donated to them, you were on a watch list. Just ones that do community service work. So filmmakers like Asya Bandawi, who is an Algerian American from uh, suburbs of Chicago, in her own documentary profiles, profiles <laughs> um, breaks down yeah. what had happened to her community in the wake of 9-11 in terms of surveillance. I mean, she quite literally comes mm-hmm. like voice to voice with. And her documentary is called The Feeling of Being, being watched, watched, right? Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, spoiler alert, she basically con- confronts um, an agent who had been assigned their community. Mm-hmm. And all that is documented. There's so many, so much great work coming out. Lara Cabral follows an informant from the Muslim community in the documentary Terror around his last sting. I don't know how she got Mm. the clearance for it, but she did. So this is part of doing that work, but going going in in a comprehensive direction of what are your stories that we would love to hear you express, contribute, be part of this narrative quilt, this this crochet that we were going to construct together. Mm. And we're going to also do the other investigative part, looking at documents that are being released in the Freedom of Information Act. There are stories that are emerging now about the documents that the current administration is trying to quickly filter out because they want to keep some things classified. But as if folks don't know the Freedom of Information Act FOIA, you can even request documents that you believe are part necessary to be part of the public record. And so we can even do that work. So... For those of you who are following this just as the documents are being um, released or as we are going to start understanding more of what actually happened around 9-11, we know that the story about Muslims in America has been written way before 9-11 and it is continuing to be written now, but the conversation that we are bringing to the forefront is what it looks like for us to rewrite that story and what it looks like for us to actually analyze the impact of the story, the community story that has been written about us um, for a very long time. And And this comes from this place of, you know, why is it that so many Muslim Americans, myself included, felt so much shame around who they were growing up and felt so much shame around their identity and and really mastering this dual at least dual identity where you're one you can be this one person at home this one person at school this one person at work really as a survival mechanism because even hearing you say Maitha, the the good muslim and the bad muslim we're talking about how the government or the state feels about Muslim members. But those are terms that we use within our Muslim community, good Muslim, bad Muslim, and and tying people's worth to doing enough of something or not enough of something else. And one of the reflective points that 
I think we need to be really critiquing and questioning for our own selves is how have we done the job of surveilling and policing within our communities ourselves? So if we're going to be, you know, really diving into what are the stories we have been telling ourselves all these years? What are the stories that we need to rewrite? And what are the stories that we are imposing on one another? Where do you think we have not dropped the ball, but really gotten gotten enveloped in something that wasn't written by us? That's a good question. There, in my estimation, I'm a fan of multi-causal explanations or multivariable ones. And the things that I'm thinking about in, of course, as you gesture towards, there's more that happens pre-9-11 and post-9-11. So let's deal with those as two separate categories. So pre-9-11, the migration of folks from quote-unquote global South countries like Africa, quote-unquote Middle East, Botswana, whatever you want to call it, Middle, middle World, uh, different parts of Asia, South Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia, the, the America, Central and South America, were previously banned, um, excluded from coming into the U.S. until 1965. So there was a reopening of the country that came on the heels of the civil rights movement as part of a liberalizing trend in Congress. And I'm not the first person to say this. 1619 Projects has this theory as well. And what what they came to was an America where most folks did not necessarily see the struggle, the fight, and the gains that came from the Black liberation movement, the Black freedom movement. Mm. And so those folks, like you and me, or our parents or our grandparents, mostly brown folks, of course, it co- includes Black folks from Africa and other other parts like the Americas. Um, they had, this is me exceptionally generalizing, they had an attitude and approach with America. I'll narrow it down a little bit. For sure, I know this of a lot of Arab American, Arabs that come to America and Arab Muslims, that what they were interested in America was economic mobility. And there was really very little desire to be politically involved And whether or not that comes from the trauma of being from countries where that wasn't really a possibility to be part of civil society and just used to having a dictator um, or other other things. Um, So there was very limited engagement with building out political power. However, at the same time, Black Muslims had different routes around that. Some of them in the pre-1975 period were involved with the nation, and the nation had a philosophy of separatism from the American political system. But of course, there were Black Muslims that resisted politically the injustices of the state. So you had different things happening within the Muslim community. So it's kind of hard to talk about like a pre-9-11 moment. But when post-9-11 happens, you have these communities that come together and of course, what do they see? They see images of brown men. And so, and of course, it, that, that's all conflated and flattened out as an Orientalist, one group of people understanding of us, right? 
And so while most of the folks who were involved in this operation were from Saudi Arabia, right? We, we know that. Um, and so they were looking to people who looked like those people to come out and condemn the attacks. They were looking for the moderate Muslim, quote unquote. Now, if you have news stations coming to these folks, and by the way, our institutions, our national Muslim institutions also didn't do a good job in being and honoring and embracing the diversity of our Muslim American community that was that is overwhelmingly black, right? Um, and so the heads of these organizations come out and they start to represent us and our moderate voice, quote unquote. And so what they do in this space is, and this is what I think going to your question of a missed opportunity, is because they don't have political leverage or political power, they submit to the limited false dichotomy they're offered. And that is, oh, wait, I'm, I'm somebody that just came here to make money and I pray I'm a good Muslim and we're good Muslims. And we just need to distance ourselves from anything that resembles a critique of the injustices of America. And so what we could have been doing is instead say, why don't you talk to the, why don't you talk to Saudi Arabia? <laughs> like, you know, that, why don't you um, also get your story about the history of Muslim Americans from black Muslims? Also, what, what people could have we had that we now are building power around? We have Ilhan Omar, we have Rashid Talab, we have so Keith Ellison, we have so many folks that are now making it in terms of local political offices. But at the time, during 9-11, we did not mm -hmm. because it was about an economic mobility and just put your head down, do work, make money. And that's what you came to America for. Mm -hmm. One of the We've been having conversations around stories about 9-11 for the last 20 years, but it's been really hard to find mainstream stories that have focused on Muslim American voices and just the residuals and the impact of how the war on terror, which is a war on a feeling because terror is a feeling, how that has directly impacted the Muslim Americans who live here. And that is why our focus in See Something, Say Something is how the media's misrepresentation of Muslims in, in America and Muslims across the world has directly impacted American culture, society, and our own identities. And not just Muslim American identities, but all identities. And one of our theories is, you know, America's biggest export is its story. This is a theory that uh, I learned from a professor, a Columbia University professor who teaches American presidencies. And when I heard that, the first time I heard that, it just clicked and it made sense to me because even when I talk to my cousins abroad who have this, you know, huge, just this image or had this image of what it meant to be an American, what it meant to have the blue passport is what they would always say. Yeah. And this comes from the story that we've told about the land and the people here and the communities here. 
Why is it that media and why have you chosen for many years to to work and investigate on in within the media space and the storytelling space? Why is it that this vehicle has been one that has been overlooked in the critique that we have around it? I mean, we talk about it within the Muslim community all the time. We we brace ourselves. We hold our breath when we're watching television. We're watching a movie where a Muslim is represented. I don't think that the rest of of, of viewers hold their breath the same way. I mean, I know this because I've been in the movies with a friend or I've um, watched a television show with a friend or, or, or watched people's reactions. And, the, and what is so glaringly obvious to me is not glaringly obvious to them. Mm. And that's what happens with misrepresentation is you look constantly to see if you can find yourself in the images that you're watching, in the storylines, in the narratives and we do that so well where we can find ourselves in shows and in films that have no representation of anybody who looks like us or dresses like us or whatever it is, but we still know that at the end of the day, we can still relate to each other's stories. That's something, that's like a, a skill that I think we've gotten so good at because we know what it's like to be on one low side of the spectrum. So where did investigating media pique your interest when you studied the impact of the war on terror across all facets? I was a part of, I continue to be a part of media. So that is part of the origin story for me. A longer origin story is, I think a lot of us can relate to watching our parents watch the news in this mm -hmm. pre 9-11 talking back to the CNN correspondent or the commentators on any news channel when it came to our region. And then thinking, wait, if there's a counter narrative, is there's an alternative narrative to the hegemonic one that I'm hearing, well, isn't that also true of everything else they're talking about in mainstream news? Isn't that a possibility? But what really motivated the pathway or the, the passionate desire to get involved in media was thinking about how I had grown up and then 9-11 happening and realizing that, as you said, Noor, I didn't see myself on those stations. I didn't see myself on TV and film. For the most part, if we're specifically talking about the Arab American Muslim community, we had people who were white passing, who went with other names. We had people who were Latinx passing and went with being Latinx, Selma Hayek, um, as one sort of example. I mean, Shannon Elizabeth, American Pie, she's Syrian. So all these folks were in front of our eyes, but they were also distant from who we were. And I... I had kind of a strange reaction to 9-11. Some folks wanted to put their head under and just go about without being noticed. I was firmly assertive about, no, this is who I am. I'm not going to fit. Now I know I don't fit this imagination mm. of this limited imagination of what you expect an American to look like. But I'm going to push up against those imaginary walls and I'm going to break through being me. So 
I was I was a part of media. I started, strangely enough, writing for blogs. Remember, blogs were a thing, and yes, people actually we went the, to those spaces. Those were some of the first third spaces, alternative spaces we had to tell our story. And news stations started to pick up from those stories from blogs. And then that ended up being a, a really strange pathway for me to do Arab American view like a variety show called What's Happening. And then I came into uh, this sh- show on Al Jazeera that Ahmed Shihabuddin had conceptualized that would integrate um, live social media commentary called The Stream. And I ended up filling in for him. And then after that, started writing for HuffPost, doing more things like The Young Turks, and writing for CNN even. And then as I'm, as I'm writing, I'm realizing a lot of my critiques are around the language that we've been using. How do we understand what terrorism is? What is the Arab Spring? Mm. Why do we use that term? And then something happens where I go into Hollywood. It's just, just such a funny little transition growing up in Southern California. For most of us who are born and raised in Southern California and Tongva, Chumash land, we, the, the industry's right there. Like Hollywood is there. We're, ju- we're doing our thing. We're social justice organizing. This is one of the most organized cities in America in terms of social justice work. We're teachers, we're dentists, we're um, factory workers. There's so many factories here. But the idea of Hollywood is just an over there thing. When I was doing my PhD program, I was being asked to do all these 101s on what are Arabs, what are Muslims? And I would usually start from the most obvious, convenient place, which is a visual. And that visual comes Mm. to us from Hollywood. And so I would begin by offering them a cinematic history of the representation of Arabs or Muslims, whatever I was doing, so that I could show them where their stereotypes, where their conceptions about our communities came from. And it was dramatic, Noor. I gave a talk to a school in Cleveland, a high school, listening into a conversation with young folks, teenagers. And this girl was sharing a story about her deep, irrational fear of her mother going to the dry cleaners. She thought every single time her mother was going to go to the dry cleaners that she might not come back. And you know why? Because the guy at the dry cleaners, again, pre-9-11, had a turban on. So again, we also got mixed up for Sikh because that's how um, ignorant Orientalism works. But what connection did she make? She saw that image in Indiana Jones. And so for her, after hearing the connections that were made and through doing these talks, I realized that there was a triangulation happening, that there was politics, popular culture and public opinion, and they operated on this triangle influencing each other. So we can't necessarily pinpoint this is the reason why you just see good Muslim, bad Muslim images. Of course, Bush said that we can look at when it happened in the political realm. But he's also feeding off of a narrative system that existed in Hollywood for so long. In the 1990s, it was a slew of terror genre films like Executive Decision, True Lies, Back to the Future. You have your own Back to the Future story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, um, 
the the Back to the Future story is part of why this project is so important to me. When I watched it the first time growing up, I didn't think anything of it. And then when I watched it the second time, which was in the last, I would say, five years, um, the opening scene, I think Back to the Future 2, is the Libyans are coming, the Libyans are coming, and they are these, uh, quote, terrorists who are dressed and Doc and Marty are trying to run away from them. There's no other mention of Libya in the entire film. This is just, it's them running away from the Libyan terrorists. And that was in 1985. And 1986, President Ronald Reagan bombed a civilian apartment building in Libya that killed several of my family members. And while I was recapping this story with my 10-year-old brother, like he, I could see him being torn, like in his face, he felt so torn because he just, you know, he said, I still really like Back to the Future. Like he still really loves this movie of this mad scientist and the this kid who, you know, isn't very popular and gets to go on these adventures, <laughs> Rick and Morty. <laughs> but um <laughs> But I like, and I felt that for him because I like, I still love the movie too. And, you know, we, so many of us who are part of different sub communities that have been misrepresented in American media have this, we have to have this reckoning multiple times in our lifetime where we know that majority of the time our stories, our images are represented it's going to be harmful to our community. But do you just write the entire industry off? Do you become a part of the industry? Do you critique the industry? Do we hold this public uh, conversation? Or do we just completely start over and make our own system? And these are so many of the questions that we have as we approach this because it's, a, it's like who at the end of the day really benefits from storylines that are constantly harming ourselves and our communities and each other. Because I know I don't want to walk around feeling afraid, but I know that people like the student that you just mentioned do because of the images that they've seen. Yeah. I, I of course, this is part of research that I've done for a report I wrote for Pop Culture Collaborative back in 2018. So there's more to add in this report, but it's a 100-year survey, a little bit over 100 years, actually, of how Muslims have been represented over 100 years in TV and film. And then it ends with recommendations for the film industry of what to do, how to shift, how to move forward. But really, I'm taking people through what I've identified as tropes and traps that we've been forced into in the storytelling realm. And a lot of them line up with the political crises, quote unquote, war making that is happening at that time. As you said, you just broke down. This story happened. And then there's the bombing of your family's, a civilian building. And of course, that also was part of an understanding of Libya as a pariah state, given how the West interfaced with Gaddafi, right? So there is a, a, a political laboratory petri dish that 
mm-hmm. that this stuff, it's not a vacuum. It's not an isolation that is being worked out visually for us. And another clear one is when there was an embargo in the 1970s, um, 1973 of oil and the U.S. was lining up for that oil, um, for that gas. And the convenient enemy, the villain that they pointed to was this this, uh, lechivious oil sheikh that was exorbitantly spending money and after white women. There's so many of those films. Y'all won't even believe it. Yes. And we'll link to the report in the show notes because Maitha did such a great job Thank of you. detailing out the examples of, because I learned about this through reading the, your report. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So what I, what I um, was able to categorize, cause I kind of broke it down race and gender wise, because different things were happening to different groups. So black, um, black American Muslims had two things going on. The state was very much trying to set them up as, uh, as um, dangerous dissenters. That's actually a good, I should have used that dangerous dissenters. Yeah. Um, a- as we know of Muhammad Ali, who's now lauded but at the time when he resisted the draft he was very much maligned by by most of not even just maligned by the US media he was taken to court he was tried um and so this was frequently happening of course we know what they said about the nation the hate the hate produced and especially profiling mm-hmm. Malcolm X um but black american filmmakers did very redeeming uh, uh, stories about the Black American Muslim experience. So you have examples of that in films like Car Wash, even Menace to Society, the redeeming character, the moral compass is a Muslim. You had Spike Lee doing Malcolm X. You have a favorite of mine, Julie Dash, investigating the sea islands where Muslim, Black, Muslim communities became fugitives on it during the time of slavery. And she shows how the, the cultural rituals were retained. Um, Daughters of the dust. So you had all these things going on at the same time. You had mainstream filmmaking doing something completely different. So Malcolm X comes a week before Disney's animated Aladdin in 1992 with almost absolutely no Muslim voices. Um, only really one speaking um, Arab Muslim woman, and that's Jasmine. That was, going back to our earlier conversation, that was literally the only available image I had of a quote-unquote Arab woman on (laughs) TV and screen before 9-11 because everybody else had, as Jack Shaheen, media scholar who passed away, would call it, um, women were in black sheets, which is... Which is such a, a, a great way to understand what is happening. And then in a post 9-11 moment, there's this, there's this notion of the good Muslim, bad Muslim that is even more intensified. Um, and there are kind of tricks that the industry does to complicate this scenario. So you don't know if it's the white Muslim convert who's the bad Muslim um you the the 
brown Muslim might be an informant that's helping the state. The black Muslim might be an informant who's helping the state. So they, within this limited storytelling world, they're also doing very limited storytelling. And that's another thing that we haven't really interrogated. And this conversation made me think about, which is the idea that Joseph Campbell discovered the the framework or the archetype for storytelling is also part of a Western approach to storytelling, right? So they operate in this framework that says, well, you know, Joseph Campbell and his studies said that you just go through this hero's journey and that's it. But then what ends up happening is the need to create a very stark villain to the hero. And so people like Umberto Eco, who was is was an Italian writer under um, Mussolini, the dictator during pre World War II and, and during World War II, um, he said actually like one of the elements of fascism is to create this hero narrative, and so we hopefully through this project aren't just going to be interrogating the Muslim American experience with the ways that were represented through media and film and how that's connected to politics, how that influences public opinion. But hopefully we get to unsettle and disrupt the ways that storytelling happens, especially through a colonial Western lens that we might not even be aware of. Mm, but yes, yeah. I, I mean, and and that's, I feel like that's also more of that personal part of this story because as we continue to investigate, we are finding out more and more that there are aspects of this story that we've internalized on a personal level and a community level. There, the, going back to the doing the state's work for them, mm. we have within our own communities experienced so much horizontal hostility, which is, if you've heard me talk about it so many times before, is that feeling of, of distaste and, and hostility between people who share similar values or um, are within some type of similar community. And that's that's come from this deep scarcity mindset of you have to be this type of Muslim or this type of way because it's the only way for us to survive or you have to be this this way this type of way because there's only one television show that's being led by a muslim right now and we have to squeeze in all of our representation in that one show i mean you work on the show rami and rami has said this where like that is going to be that's a huge part of his his criticism from the muslim community is like everybody wants him to include all of these narratives and all these stories and be a little everybody. bit this yeah, and, and but but and the and the point is the proof for this is that that means we need more stories in general. Like we need to really be understanding that within our collective, Islam is the most diverse religion in the world. There are people who experience so many different ways of life and life experiences and heritages and cultures that um that we ourselves are and, and this is your term, polycultural. We have so many different layers within us that we have yet to question. We have yet to um, just like put to the test and ask ourselves, is this me? Is this really me? Or is this what I have been taught that I should be like? Yeah, I I have been meditating a lot on 
that what you're gesturing towards, which is how much of how we see ourselves vis-a-vis our faith tradition, our relationship to it, the way we feel maybe boxed in by a community that also feels the pressure of surveillance, how much has that defined our relationship to our practice? Is it now all about what the external identity looks like, what external piety looks like, the performance of it in community Mm. spaces? I mean, it actually, if you sit and think about it, it is a mind F, right? It's just, think about the, the community expecting you to do outward displays of salat, of prayer. And then you have the NYPD counting how many times you're praying to see whether or not you're a risk if they've brought in an informant into a space and that's one of their metrics. So I just, I want folks to sit with what that does to somebody internally in the same way when you're walking outside of your door and you're perceived as a threat, what does that, what does that do to you? Um, the, the other thing that I've been thinking about as you were talking about polycultural, um, it's a term that one of my mentors, Robin G.D. Kelly, came up with, B.J. Prashad, takes that word and does a book-length investigation. You can look at both their work. It's been very informative for me, is how there is a rigid, multicultural understanding of being the Muslim versus us existing in a constellation of quote unquote identities, of practices, of, of cultures that have contributed to defining us and defining our trajectory. And what does it mean that when we go to an MSA and see what their programming looks like, most of it is about what is Muslim identity for Gen Z look like in a post 9-11 world, all these sort of identity questions, which I'm not discounting as being frivolous or not important, but do we even have the space to talk about our spiritual practice? Do we even have the space and the, the ability to be in community with each other around interrogating and being in a debate about some of the things that we saw as check marks for whether or not you are a Muslim and then additional check marks if you're a good Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, that's, that has been, I have also been meditating on this so deeply because we are, I think that so many of us are either in for a reckoning or are are going through it right now or have gone through it where we're really having to start to ask those questions because we have to ask where we learned what we learned about our faith from, who we learned it from, and what are the factors in play. And a lot of that comes back to how we've internalized the stories about ourselves and how we've either tried to run away from them completely or tried, which is a form of spiritual bypassing. It's just like, we are not that. I mean, you and I have had these discussions about how we grew up using the term American, which is American, yes. stands for American, but we also... Um, what it really just meant, it was white, like white American and how to be less like them, more like them, whatever. But it was always a them. And it was like in the othering of our own selves and being othered and having our own political leaders use language like us versus them. We have 
in so many cases, really taken that and said, you know, there is a them and have been left with figuring out, well, can you like, what does it mean to be Muslim? And what does it mean to be American? And what does it mean to be here today as both of those constantly having your identity questioned in public and in private? And that's the thing is like, we, we, we have, we have to understand what it is that, that we are taking as truth for ourselves in order for us to actually show up and know what we actually believe about ourselves and what doesn't ring true. Because I know that in my own experience, and I'll break it down because I know that's a little heady, that as I've come up in the work that I've done, I've also adopted this sense of victim consciousness where even though, you know, I've had um, struggle in my experience of becoming a journalist and I have, you know, not gotten the job because of I'm, I'm Muslim or I choose to wear the hijab or whatever it is. With all of that, I've still been able to figure it out. I've still been able to like pave this path for myself. I've still been able to figure I'm here today doing this work because of all of the things that I've gone through. And yet oftentimes when I get asked interview questions, the questions are always deficit framed. So mm. it always comes from this place of like, you've already lost or you've, ha or no matter where you are in your journey, you have to overcome something. And even within the questions that are being posed, even within like the pre-interviews or even when you do share your story and oftentimes it's like the lens and the prism that people are looking at you through is so thick, so strong in the misrepresentation of it that you begin to question yourself. Is that true about me? Like, is it, am I really the victim that they make me out to be? And that requires us taking ourselves out of the situation that we're in right now and almost looking at it as objectively as possible. And, uh, and objectivity is going to be a concept that we're going to interrogate very thoroughly in this process because what does that even mean anymore? Um, but it really is going to require us to show up so openly. And that was one of the intentions that we made when we got together about this project is how are we going to choose to show up with openness? Because we have no idea what is to come. We don't know the information that we are going to receive. I mean, this 20-year mark is so huge because it means we're going to have access to information that we've never had access to before. And I ask myself and I ask you and the people who are listening, like, are we ready to actually face ourselves? Are we ready to face the stories that we've internalized? Are we ready to uh, potentially let go of some of the narratives that we've adopted and that we've, and that we've taken to be at gospel and ask ourselves, what do I actually want? What is my actual story in all this? And Maitha, why is it so important for people to choose to show up for themselves and acknowledge the stories that they have been telling themselves so far? I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, which is that there was a reckoning. There is a reckoning. And it's very interesting because that's what I labeled that period of when 45, when Trump starts to run for president, his campaign mm. shifts 
the public language around who Muslims are when there was a call for Muslim registry after there was a call to get the the Mex or calling Mexicans rapists. There was a sense it was so interesting that this it took them took folks this long that there was something wrong with calling for a registry, even though there was a Muslim registry after 9-11 and Sears that happened under Bush that was only dismantled in the, the last couple of years of Obama's presidency. So there was a reckoning with a system that produced that language in that moment and the possibility of those policies. And so you saw that also happen in TV and film. After Trump was elected, a week or so, or a couple of weeks, detail this in the report if you want to go and, and take a look, New York Times held a panel conversation with showrunners, Homeland, Quantico, um, Little Mosque on the Prairie, very different shows. Uh, there were actually, I don't know if it, there was uh, Mosque on the Little Mosque on the Prairie, but there were Muslim and Arab and South Asian showrunners that were part of this panel. So people part of the community and adjacent community. And so there was a question posed that if they thought that some of their, especially the homelands and the Quanticos, that their, if their storytelling contributed to the election of Trump. And mm. Howard Gordon of Homeland said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, absolutely, I, I, I would be lying if I said that that wasn't the case. You could look for the exact phrase. The showrunner of Quantico immediately contacted the network and said, can we stop doing terrorism storylines? So there was a shift and a reckoning with what their stories possibly produced in how it influenced public opinion that led to the election mm. of this guy. And so there was more of a concerted effort, strangely enough, to create this opening for our stories. That's how Rami as a show became a possibility, could be greenlit in this moment where now, you know, it's interesting hearing about the deficit thinking where there is a sense of guilt around this history that we can critique, but it does provide us this opening in this moment. And as Rami has said, I believe this was a Hollywood Reporter op-ed that he wrote, the fetishizing of him being the first is actually not the direction we should take because the question that comes is if you're heralded as the first, are you the last? And so mm -hmm. in an effort to use a show like Rami, which has received remarkable recognition laudations, awards, Golden Globe, a Golden Globe Award, a Peabody Award, nominated for Emmys. This show is an opening for our community. It doesn't represent our entire community. There are probably resonances that people within the multiple community, the multitude of, of community spaces within the quote unquote Muslim community have experienced, and then people on the outside of it. But I'll tell you, Noor, you know, the story that we did in season one of the, the prepubescent Rami character encountering the internet and 9-11 and other things. <laughs> um, yeah. 
the, the strawberry episode. Yeah, strawberries, exactly. A lot of folks that approached me about the story said it was the first time that they saw from an Arab American Muslim lens how we experienced 9-11. That tells you, mm. if that is the first time that they saw that, yeah, think about all the movies that we've had um, from... I mean, how many documentaries just came out this week or, or yeah. series that just came out this week in the last couple of weeks about 9-11? And it, it's so... It's like such a big question mark to me because one, I always think, I often think about how the Muslim American community never got the space to actually grieve mm. during that time because we were always in survival mode and we were just like all, we were tense because we were talking about, well, how are we going to be safe? Like people in the community were talking about whether or not they're going to be taking off their hijabs because they don't feel safe. And, um, and, and the, are we going to be allowed to donate to charity? I mean, the charity thing is so, I, I remember that from when I was a kid. So we had all of these like survival mode question marks and it was so in anxiety inducing because nobody actually knew. Like there were things that people did that got them, you know, prison sentences without realizing that they, they, they had done something wrong entirely. And that's- Sending just, money back home to their family. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And just there always being this question mark on you. And so instead of actually grieving this huge national and international tragedy, you were made to constantly pick up this new trait of having to condemn actions that you didn't know people were doing about people who you have no idea about. And it just continued. That habit just continued. Anytime there was some type of attack that was done by someone who had claimed to be Muslim, which again, wasn't the majority of, of t attacks in the United States ever. Um, we, we have to come up with what are the statement? Like I re literally remember people in my newsroom asking if I was going to put out a statement. And I was like, why do I need to put out a statement? Why do I after, have to say anything? After 9-11 or after Not after 9-11. Not after 9-11. Just other, other, other attacks. Yeah. I was eight, eight years old. I didn't, I, I hadn't put out any statements. <laughs> I think you were a little young. I, I think you were a little no, young. No, but it's just like, it's this thing that was always on, on our minds constantly. I mean, my 10-year-old brother does. He feels like he has to say something. Like we were just talking about that. Like the fact that he feels like he has to say, I just want my as he's been watching, because he's been obsessed with 9-11 documentaries recently, he's literally said to me, I just want people to know that we're not all like that. And that Aww. comes from that place of feeling yeah. like you have to condemn something and uh, defend your identity. And I'm like, why this 10-year-old American kid should not have to feel like he has to do that. No kid you know, should ever feel like they have no, to do that. Yeah. You know, um, you were mentioning documentaries there are other spaces where we flourished storytelling wise, interesting enough. Yeah. And the documentary space has been big um, for us and our community, independent filmmaking, the films mm -hmm. that go to Sundance, South by Southwest, um, so many of that indie circuit space or so many of our projects in that indie circuit space have taken off and have been warmly received. Um, and then, you know, a very interesting space I've been reflective around is that Muslims 
in their expressive totality or in their art, in their work, don't necessarily fully show up on scripted TV, but you will find them in reality shows. You will find them un in an unbelievable <laughs> abundance in, in unscripted. I'll give you examples. You have, um, uh, uh, run, what, what is it? Project Runway. You have mm -hmm. um, Muslim Shout out to designers. Renee Hill. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. You have the famous dog trainer who is a Muslim. You, if you watch Nathan for you, I don't know if anybody watches it, but it was or watched it. It was such a brilliant kind of pseudo documentary or reality show series that was was trying to assist. Um, and I'm doing air quotes right now, um, trying to assist local businesses in LA with expanding and shifting their business and making them more, I don't know, marketable, profitable, all those things. And so most of the small business owners he encountered, not most, I'll say a surprising amount were Muslims, were brown folks. Um, and it, it, sitting back and watching reality TV made me realize, yeah, we are a big part of the culture and fabric of this nation. I've known this, but it was even more jarring watching it in reality television and then seeing not even a, a numerical equivalent, but even qu um, quality wise, not that fullness of the experience of the Muslim American in whatever context. I mean, we are, we're shifting writers rooms and there are many more Muslim American writers in Hollywood, but there are also these efforts to just create the sort of checkbox and then yeah. do, do that kind of diversity inclusion work. And as you've seen, the, you know, we go back to the ways that, that um, who we are is defined for us instead of by us. Yeah. And so one of the biggest tropes around women is the headscarf. Like Grey's Anatomy had a, a Muslim character with a headscarf. Other shows do. And what is their obsession, Noor, is the moment the headscarf comes off at work. And that Oh, my God. Yeah, that's <laughs> How many literally... times has that happened to you in work, at work? And also, it wasn't that long ago when there was a Muslim reality television show that was pulled off of the air because yep. um, I think it was either Home Depot or Lowe's. It was Lowe's. So it was Lowe's. It was Lowe's. Okay, it was Lowe's that pulled out of – um, like they pulled their ads or their commercials, which is literally how these shows get made. And it became this whole controversy because there was a show about Muslims in it was Michigan, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, think it was the Michigan. Dearborn community and, in Michigan. And I remember just feeling so devastated because it was the first time. I mean, I didn't entirely watch the show regularly. I, I caught like the first few episodes and I remember being like, wow, I can't believe this is an option. Period. And just or like, I just can't believe this is an option. And then having it confirmed that, oh, but people don't want to put money behind us. Like they're afraid to. In fact, they're afraid. They they like they don't even want to take a stance that they don't see anything wrong with giving a commercial or, or advertising on a show that you would typically advertise on anyway if it didn't have happen to be about people who were Muslim. Well, you know what's interesting about that time period? I think it aligns neatly, contextually, with when different state legislators are making this move. I think it was Nebraska, Tennessee, um, 
somewhere in the South for anti-Sharia bills mm. that would yeah. try to prevent the instituting of Sharia law in their state. We'll have to double check that. But that, I think, was, again, we're looking at this triangulation of what happens exactly. very clearly around the politics of the time, the pop culture that might be pushing up against the politics and then the public opinion saying, wait a second, this is the politics we receive. Let's push back against what we see. That's why we call it a triangulation because it moves differently at different moments. But you can see that there is a relationship that is emerged between those different focal points. And so, yeah, you see this resistance. That's what happened. People, people pushed Lowe's to pull out their funding those same folks who had this anti-Muslim sentiment, who clearly were xenophobic um, and influenced by, I could tell you, I'd, I've done s reports and surveys around the political ads that congressional reps used in their incumbency runs, and they were horrific. They actually look like satirical cartoons, Islamophobic satirical cartoons. You think that they're doing something cartoonish, but it was a reality drive to manipulate a, a going back to 9-11, that tender fear that folks had in that moment and to continue to tap that nervous system and say, wait a second, mm. did you just re did you release your sympathetic response? Did you release your freeze, flight or fight? No, 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 no. You have to extend that. And so people are dealing with nervous system fatigue around having to be in that what they call a hyper arousal moment or in high alert in this alarmist phase of biochemical reaction of a nervous system that is frazzled and continues to be tapped. Yeah. Usually. So what we're story. saying is that we have to feel our feelings all the way through. Yes. And that instead of and that we should probably dissect why we waged a war on a feeling to begin with, because when you wage a war on something like terror, it means you're waging a war on you could be waging a war on anybody because anybody can technically terrorize you in one. Yeah, precisely. In one of these, I'm sure it's it's one that everybody's been watching now. I think it's called Turning Point 9-11. It's a um, multi-episode series. And Barbara Lee, who is was the sole opponent on September 18th to the authorization for use of military force, which authorized not just the invasion of Afghanistan, but I think 19, 20 other countries and 40 plus invasions and is still in use today. She's the sole opponent. What she said was, and it, it, I want us to think about like what it meant at that time a week after 9-11, less than a week after 9-11, she hits the floors of Congress and says, hold up, this is a very general law that creates a dangerous precedent for expanding executive power. And we are not going to be able to pull back from that if we authorize this. And not to say that we are diminishing the pain, the suffering the, the feelings that people are experiencing with losing their loved ones and the tragedy that folks have to sit with. But 
in a moment where our feelings are so high, right, where we haven't processed them, you need to depend on leaders, not depend, but your leaders should be the ones who say, okay, hold up. I'm going to use my knowledge of this system and, and be rational about what this could mean if we just operate from a feeling. And so what she closes this documentary series with, sorry, spoiler alert, um, is she said this authorization for use of military force set the stage for perpetual war. And 20 years mm -hmm. later, is she right? She's right. Yeah. She's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost chilling to I mean it is chilling to under, to realize that there has really never been a better time to finally tell this story because we have so much information now over the last 20 years and we are witnessing all of us around the world the perpetuality of the war that we are talking about in so many different facets because it's not even just what happened in Afghanistan. It's also what's happening on our television screens, on our computer screens today. And with that, we have an ask that uh, for our community members because one of the reasons that See Something, Say Something is so important and needs to be done is because it is going to be a community-led investigation. And that means that we are asking you all to contribute your stories. We have created a poll that we will link in the show notes and, uh, and an email address that you can submit stories to. And we want to hear from you. If you are somebody who has been impacted by the misrepresentation of Muslims on American media, if you are someone whose opinion on Muslims has changed because or been developed because of what you've seen in the media, if you are an educator, if you are somebody who worked in congressional offices around 9-11 and until now who have heard things, seen things, read things, if you work in a newsroom, we want to hear from you. So if this is a story or conversation that has impacted you in any way, please, please reach out to us. Maitha, who and what do you specifically want to hear about and from? I'm very interested in the intergenerational dimension of this story. What was happening for folks who came here after 1965, who were migrants? What did they encounter? I also want to know what happened pre-9-11 to them. I know my father experienced a hate crime, probably several, but one that was physical, uh, pre-9-11 in the 19, early 1970s, during a time when there was um, Nixon surveillance of the Arab community in America. I want to hear from folks who have been here for generations in America, um, folks who were forcibly brought over here. What has their experience been like in this pre-9-11 moment? I want to know how Gen Z is faring. I want to know about that eight-year-old like you know, with parental approval that feels the need, like your 10-year-old brother, to speak out against or that expectation that he should speak out. 
um, against what is happening. Um, so that's that's one of the features. I was very in particular interested in what was happening in congressional offices because I was an intern September 2001, started right before 9-11 till December 2001, and it was eye-opening. And the lowest level folks might even be, like the intern, the most interesting storytellers because we were the ones who were answering constituent calls. And especially at local offices, when you hear from constituents, you're really being told about the pulse of these American cities mm. and districts. Of course, we want to know what's going on in D.C. That's why we're going to be looking at uh, declassified documents from NSA to Justice Department, the Homeland Security, newsrooms. I wasn't around in a newsroom when the story broke, but I know that we had so many people within our community that have might have operated behind the scenes in those rooms. What were they being told was the direction of these stories? What could they report on? What couldn't they? Did they have resistance to any of their ideas? Did they feel like they could even express their ideas or their experiences? I, um, yeah, I, there's so many different communities I'm interested. And for the folks, I'm an artist. So for the, the folks who are artists or see themselves doing the work of art, what, how did that change um, your relationship to art making? Um, what, what did it shift for you? Muslim teachers, um, mm. people in education, what did they have to carry? What did they see happen? Um, there's, there's so many facets to this story. It's literally affected and seen in every industry you can think about, every field of labor. So I, I'm actually, Noor, I'm approaching this in a very open way, and I believe you are yep. too, because I think yep. that if we just keep it open and, mm -hmm. and not put too much of a theory on top of what we're going to find, the pattern's going to emerge for us. And what is going to mm. surface are some of the things that we probably felt in an infrared level and then, and then are going to be able to tell a story or multiple stories about what happened from 9-11 to now, pre, and then, as we said, where are we going and how can we disrupt and shift the direction that was defined for us? How can we rewrite our stories because there is no better time? Um, we are we are here together now, and this, again, is a community effort, and it's meant to be for a reason. And so we do this work in service of you finding answers as we find answers for ourselves. And thank you for taking the time to listen. This this conversation is just a prerequisite conversation. Um, the intent is that it leaves you with more questions, that you're sitting with some of the questions that we're sitting with as well. And we want to hear from you. So I will have the email address in the show notes. It's contact at nortagori.com, but for reference, it'll be there. And I, I mean, I can't wait for you all to hear, watch, read what we, uh, what we produce. And, um, I just, I'm so humbled and excited and nervous and can't wait to see us create together.
Me too. Me too. I am really thrilled about the journey that we're going to be taking and the the trust that folks have in um, the the architecture we're building out to be able to tell stories. Thank you so much, Maitha. And thank you for sharing bits and pieces of your insides for this conversation. We can't wait to hear more. And um, until then, we'll talk to you all soon.